Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. And I have here uh, one of my good friends, Keith Kajiu, who was visiting my class at the University of Winnipeg. So what we're going to hear is uh, the recording excerpted from the class uh, that we did at the University of Winnipeg. So thank you to the University of Winnipeg for helping me host uh, Keith Kajiu. Thank you to Keith Kajiu for participating and to all the students uh, for their great questions. Primarily here, I'm just asking you know, student questions and a few of my own questions or synthesizing student questions. So really you have to give you know, uh, them the credit. Uh, and this is a longer interview, so I've split into two parts. Um, so next week, you know, you can hear part two, but for right now, please enjoy part one, talking to Keith Kedu. So I'm Keith, uh, another uh, writer and editor in Winnipeg. I deal mostly with uh, horror, or that's what I'm most interested in for sure. Um, I have a couple of smaller uh, books that have been published that are my fiction, and then I've edited uh, a horror anthology as well as a horror series through uh, the Winnipeg Writers Festival, which um, was an event where four writers stayed overnight in a supposedly haunted house. And then uh, we published the stories that came out of that. Um, yeah, that's pretty much in terms of why Jonathan asked me to be here, I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for having yeah. me. So Keith is not only, uh, you know, has uh, published, you know, horror, like horror novel gaze, um, he has a edited horror fiction as well. You know, published that edited horror collection. Um, he's one of our local uh, horror writers. He just published a new book. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if you call it a chapbook or, uh, or, or what you would call it precisely, but a short story kind of in book form um, called uh, Signal Noise. Did I say that right? Signal Decay, sorry. Um, and then... It's a um, yeah, it's really an excellent, you know, short uh, little book. And, um, you know, he's a short story collection. He's uh, completed and shopping around at the moment. And Keith also, it, I, the other reason I just wanted to have Keith here is he's one of the people that I know, probably the person I know, uh, one or two people I know who has the kind of largest wealth of horror knowledge and just, you know, an insightful kind of um, take on horror. So uh, I've got some questions from people who couldn't be here. And then, of course, there are you know, people who are here. Uh, so maybe we'll just kind of turn it over to questions for the moment. Although I'd like to just ask one question first from a student who isn't here, because I think it is a nice intro into the overall discussion. Uh, and this is Megan, who was, uh, wanted to know, what is it that drew you to begin writing horror? And were there any authors in particular that kind of inspired you the most uh inspired you to write in this genre but overall what you know kind of drew you most to writing horror and then you know specifically what authors uh, are kind of the touchstones or inspirations for you sure. um, i have always been into horror even from when i was a little kid i was probably into it much earlier than is socially acceptable uh, my my dad is a big horror fan also so 
Um, I saw a lot of scary movies when I was a kid that I probably shouldn't have seen. Um, that definitely left an imprint. So uh, I was a big fan of Stephen King from a very young age, uh, mostly from like I would watch the movies and then I would go I'd go and read those books as a teenager. Um, when I started uh, writing horror fiction myself, um, I sort of like w gravitated to that early on that I wanted to do uh, scary stuff, but I was in a creative writing program at university and they sort of beat that out of you or they still <laughs> they still were at that point. Uh, so I sort of drifted into more realist, but still very dark and then swung right back to doing full on horror again. Um, I think what draws me to it is is the ability to deal with um, subject matter that maybe is harder to do in a realist fashion or is simply too too hard for like that people don't want to deal with in terms of a realist story that it's it's it might be too dark um but in horror you sort of have this carte blanche to to delve into dark topics about how uh human beings work and or how they don't how society purports to function but it doesn't really work that way uh, and horror allows you to to really delve into stuff like that and to explore feelings more of like dread and when things don't work out and I think that's one of the only modes that really allows things to to not wrap up well like a, a horror story that has a has a really bad nasty ending is acceptable and it's not in anything else and i think the real world has a lot more nasty endings than it does happy endings and that is something that has drawn me to horror and that i like exploring uh when i'm writing it myself keith there's another sort of um question that kirsten had that i think has, is a nice tie to this one which is uh, just as somebody who you know spends your time writing and editing horror stories, uh, do they actually still have an effect on you in the same way that they used to, um, or that you know not, they might on a non-horror writer? She's sort of wondering what the difference is between, you know, since you know the in and outs of horror has its lost its ability to scare you. Um, I think it's harder. It's harder to scare me now but it still does happen um so like like i had said that i i watched a lot of things when i was a kid um that were scary but often it, it would be surprising what actually bothered me and what didn't so sometimes like the really scary something really really scary wouldn't get to me and then i'd watch an actual not horror movie that just had a scene in it that was really nasty and that would stay with me and i wouldn't be able to shake it um so I do still, like, I still love to absorb lots of, lots of horror. Um, I watch a lot of garbage movies <laughs> from like Amazon and Tubi and stuff that I just have on in the background while I'm working. But uh, so I'm sort of rarely scared, but I still am. It certainly does still happen that I will encounter something that is unsettling and that stays with me at like long afterwards. Um, but it just takes a little bit more uh, actual spreading out and looking for, for more stuff, but it certainly does. It does still happen for sure. But um, it's the last time it more, happened. Um, like the last example, you can like really specific time thing that happened. 
Um, I guess, uh, and sometimes it happens like, again, unexpectedly. So I watched, and now I'm not going to be able to remember what it was called, but I watched an Indonesian um, found footage horror movie. Um, it was called something simple like The Asylum or, or something. It was on Shudder. Um, and it was like super cliched idea that it's a bunch of uh, teenagers who have a streaming show that are going to stay overnight in uh, an abandoned insane asylum. Um, super old, tired idea, but just uh, some of the scares that they had in there were really, really good. And they made really, really good use of a, of a GoPro camera. Uh, and so that's where it was invented, inventive. And so there were a couple of scenes there with the, uh, the appearance of the ghosts that I did find myself like at night just being being weirded out and having a hard time actually going to sleep. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that would be that would be fairly recently. Now, people are throwing some questions in the chat here. So, uh, Chance is at saying, he, you know, earlier you mentioned the staying in a haunted house, uh, a supposedly haunted house, uh, and he wants to just kind of maybe a bit more about that. And also, a couple of people, including you know, Chance, are asking. Do you believe in the supernatural or have your own experience with that in any way? Uh, so the haunted house uh, where people stayed over, and Jonathan actually did it, so he can spook, speak to it as well, um, is the Dalnavert Museum on Carlton. That it's a it's a historical museum. It's an old, just an old mansion. Um, it used to belong to um, Sir John Macdonald's son, um, and yeah, it's it's now like a, a, a museum that you can go in and take tours and stuff, but it is supposedly haunted. Uh, so the, the four writers and a staff member stayed there overnight to write work on stories. Um, I did hear that one of the staff members did have a ghost story that I really, I thought was pretty good. That so um, it does have a very, very old, very creepy basement. The basement is really spooky. Um, and so I guess one time, uh, after some sort of party, they were like they had to set up stuff down there, and uh, this one staff member was the only one left in the house, and she was cleaning up, and she was just tidying up in the basement, and uh, she heard a noise on the stairs, like someone coming down, and she's like, "Oh, okay, must be, must be a guest or someone who's lost or just has a question," and so she turns around and she says, "There was a man at the foot of the stairs, who then ran at her full speed." Uh, and he ran so fast that she flinched and turned away. And then when she looked back, he was gone. <laughs> and then there was nobody, nobody there. So that that is one of the stories of this old spooky house. I personally don't have a ghost story. Um, I haven't actually experienced anything. I love the idea of ghosts, like in terms of the, the horror tropes or the certain monsters or things. Ghosts are my favorite. I really, really am interested in ghosts. Um, I don't know. <laughs> are, are they real or not? My, uh, my mom has a ghost story, actually, that uh, when her mother died, um, she, my grandfather's favorite food was fried, fried eggs, um, but he had really bad cholesterol late in his life, so she would only allow him to have one fried egg a week. Um, and she would make it for him. And so uh, when he had died, or when she had died rather, sorry, not to get confusing, <laughs> when my grandmother died and uh, all my aunts and uncles were there with my grandfather and one of my aunts said, oh, 
you know, let's, you've got to eat something. Why don't we make you something you'll actually eat? How about I make you a couple of fried eggs? I'm like, okay, sure. Uh, so she went into the fridge to get eggs. And when she went to try to fry them, they were all hard boiled. That uh, not like, so they couldn't fry any of them. And so they think that was, that was her making him stick to his weekly limit. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so you, you're undecided on the ghost question then? That's the another question. I'm Roger undecided. Chance yeah, lean, leaning more to no. <laughs> but, but like I said, I'm, I'm incredibly fascinated with them. I, I, eat, I watch a lot of, you know, like even uh, like ghost hunters and all <laughs> those terrible, terrible shows. I still get suckered into watching those. Um, so I really, I really like the idea of a ghost and that they might exist and what they purport to mean. But in terms of like actual real, I, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a fairly skeptical, um, cynical person. So, <laughs> Sure. There's a lot of questions that's kind of connected to your writing craft and your process. Uh, and then some, you know, connected to maybe sort of more your taste and, and interest in horror. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of synthesize a couple that I see coming in. One is just coming off the haunted house. Uh, so how does precisely did staying in that house influence your writing for that night or, you know, kind of coming off of that experience um, and, and sort of tied into that is maybe the question of what are the ways that you kind of, um, what sort of kicks you, gives you that as the way that Renat puts it is, what gives you that click to kind of start uh, or frame a plot for a story? She sort of has the idea that Renette has the idea, you know, horror is all around, is not around us and necessarily at all times, right? <laughs> like, uh, so what kind of is the thing that clicks in your head to, to grab your interest? And did anything of that haunted house, you know, do that? Um, so yeah, like for, for the haunted house, that was more that I, I edited the stories that the other writers came, came up with while they were in the house. But the, the idea of like setting up the event and what like being in a haunted house might do is just like sort of absorbing the tone of it, the, the feel. Um, so like a big part of horror stories and making horror stories work is, is their overall tone. Like they have to feel scary uh, for them to work and... A, a, the best way to sort of get at artificially creating that in your story is is to be very well versed in an environment that makes you feel that. And so being in an old creepy house that like makes all kinds of weird noises is really dark because the, the wiring in it is all really old. So there's lights in weird places. Um, that is just something where, and then you're told that it, it has ghosts in it. It's, it's gonna give you that feeling. And then, so while you're there immersed in the space, you can sort of pick up on details that are, are feeling sort of odd or that, that strike you in an interesting way. So what was interesting about all those stories, uh, so we did it uh, twice. So there's been a total of eight different writers who have gone through this experience. Um, what I find, found interesting in editing all those stories is they often picked up on a lot of the same details that they found creepy. So there were a lot, there were quite a few uh, like taxidermied animals in the house. Everybody picked up on those. Um, there was really, really old um, solvents and drugs and stuff in the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. Uh, just like odd 
powders and unguents, just weird things that that struck struck everybody as odd and that stood out. Uh, there's a stained glass window in that house, so quite a few people zeroed in on that. And so something like that, where you have a shared environment and you're seeing what multiple people are picking out as off-putting or, or dread-inducing is, you know, like that's quite effective in terms of how, how to set a tone in the, in the story. And so that was the main reason for like the Haunted House was, was to instill that feeling and see what, what different writers would do uh, being immersed in that, in that sense. In terms of what makes me want to explore a story, it often starts with like a fairly small uh, creepy idea or, or an image that I find really like, oh, that's great. Um, my, my partner, Lindsay, always finds it weird that when it's something really disturbing that my reaction is, that's awesome. And I want to delve deeper into it rather than that's horrible. I don't want to look at that anymore. <laughs> uh, so I have one, one of my stories is about um, a, a, a young boy in like the Victorian era who has to sit for a photograph with the corpse of his mother. And so this is at a time when uh, uh, photography would, it would take like a couple of hours to expose a photo. So you've got to stay very, very still. Um, and at that time, it was really common to take pictures of dead bodies um, just because you wouldn't get a lot of pictures of somebody. And because you had to stay still for so long, uh, dead bodies were perfect. They didn't move. <laughs> but part of one of the weird things was that they would prop up live people next to the bodies so that you would get a family photograph. And so I had seen some of these on the internet, just pictures of, of like these real portraits and photographs and they're horrifying. They're so odd. Um, and yeah, I just deep dove on that idea and I got really, really interested in it. And it was something where the idea was festering for a long time before I sort of broke the, the story of it, of like, how is this going to be an actual story that's got a plot and everything. So the main idea was just like, these pictures are really creepy. <laughs> and then it took me a while to, to settle on, uh, well, the story is the experience of the live person who's got to sit there and sort of endure this process. And what effect does it have on them? So the story really centers on the, the boy is horribly scarred from having had to do this. Um, but it's, it's started from like this fairly simple image online that I then went down the rabbit hole and got really interested in. Kind of along those lines, uh, Octavian wants to know if is scaring people, is scaring the reader the most important part of a horror story or sh should things like themes or the messaging or something else come first? Um, it's incredibly, it's impossible to predict whether or not readers will actually be scared. Um, so like I had, like I had said that uh, I still get, like I do encounter things that still creep me out and that I do find scary, but in terms of like what they are, it, it's hard to tell what that's going to be. And I still really appreciate stories that don't necessarily give me that visceral terror, but I can appreciate the other things that are going on in there. Um, so it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that if you're writing a horror story, like, absolutely, you want to scare at least somebody. Um, but I think I'll, uh, I'll steal uh, an idea from Stephen King and that I tend to write about things that, that do scare me. 
um, so that at, at the very least I've, I've scared myself. <laughs> I've explored an idea that I find scary and that's at least a good starting point in the, in the hope of scaring somebody else. Uh, so yeah, like these, these photographs unsettled me and that, that was the start of a story. So that's usually where mine gets started is I'm, I'm the first one unsettled by it. Um, and, but then like in terms of theme and imagery and like what the, the message is and the other, like those are very, like also very, very important. And those are things that instill a horror story with sort of that literary importance. Like why read it if it's just, if it's just a matter of scaring, like, you know, that becomes desensitizing and, you know, you can go watch the Saw movies and they, they get stupider and stupider and stupider, but the, like, but the gore is working, <laughs> right? But they're dumb as nails. Like they're stupid. Like there's nothing redeeming in there, but they're fun. Um, whereas something that's a little bit deeper and it may even not unsettle you until you start to unpack those deeper uh, the, the, those deeper themes and, and uh, images and like what is this story actually trying to say in terms of its scariness like uh, so like a good example of something like that where it is scary and it gets worse the more you sort of absorb its message would be something like Beloved by Toni Morrison uh, which is a horror story it's it's very much high capital L literature but it's a ghost <laughs> it's a ghost in a haunted house like absolutely but in terms of what it's exploring um is like this uh, it's a slavery story so it is about absolute horrendous human behavior uh and as you explore what has happened to this woman to Setha, the main the main character and what she has done and why this ghost has come back um, that's when it really becomes unsettling and it's 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 the slavery and it's the the cruelty inflicted on these people by other human beings like that's the scary part of the book the, the ghost is not scary um, it's the circumstances the historical um, lens of like of what it's telling you has happened to people like that's the scary part and it gets under your skin when you go back to it and when you look at it more more closely like that And then just kind of connected in here is um, just a broad question is, do you have any favorite horror stories or recommendations along these sorts of lines? Uh, definitely one of my favorite authors of, of horror is Thomas Ligotti, um, who is a short fiction writer, uh, a famous hermit and recluse. Um, but his, his stories are, are really creepy and bizarre. Um, so they're, they're, they would be a good example of ones that have, have left me unsettled in ways that I wouldn't quite expect. And uh, his, his stuff is quite old. Um, like his first book came out in the 80s. They've been reprinted. So there's a, there's a Penguin Classics um, of two of his, his story collections. They've, and, read, uh, they've read notes on the writing of horror just to throw in here. So yes, they know exactly. a little bit of Ligotti is if you want to talk about that story specifically in any way. That's a, like that's one that really stayed with me because it was so funny. Um, it starts out very very goofy, and then it it sort of um, as it gets darker and darker, it it pulls off this twist at the end where like the, the haunted pants really are, 
you know, a scary thing rather like at the start is just like, let's imagine haunted trousers. Like this, it seems like, oh, what's the dumbest thing? What's the dumbest example? And by the end of the story, it's not dumb anymore. It's great. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but Ligotti has a lot of stuff like that um, where the, the, the opening incident or like there are things throughout it that are quite silly. Um, and then as, as you go on, uh, the silliness just sort of becomes more and more off kilter and to the point that it is, that it is really quite scary and creepy. Um, so he's, he's a great example of someone I really, really like. Uh, Shirley Jackson is another ultimate favorite. Um, I think you guys did Hill House on your list, um, but some of her other stories, uh, her, like her novels are really fantastic. And uh, something like, again, like just a pervasive sense of like something is off. Um, and that really makes the whole story like infused with dread. And so like Hill House definitely works that way. Uh, we Have Always Lived in the Castle is another one of her more famous books that has like a similar, like something really odd is going on with, with, with what's happening. And so I think that story is revolves around two sisters who uh, live like in the burnt out husk of their mansion and can't leave because the townspeople have have tried to scare them out and they just sort of stay in there and her sister never leaves and the narrator is the only she goes into town like once a week to get provisions and then goes back and so it's only like as you read further and further you start to find out their relationship to the town and like there is something really off <laughs> with the story but um she builds to that um yeah so that's two definite favorites there. Denise had asked that question and Bailey also has a question kind of, which is just, who is your favorite author at the moment? It was those two or is it somebody else right now? Um, I actually just finished um, Mariana Enriquez's first uh, story collection, which is Things We Lost in the Fire. Uh, that is excellent. I was really, really impressed and enjoyed that one a lot. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the most recent like horror one that I really really latched on to. Um, there's like there's lots of others that are just I'm always watching for their new stuff, but uh, that aren't necessarily like most in the moment exciting discoveries. But uh, Carmen Maria Machado is also really great. Um, I like her stuff a lot. Um, Laird Barron, who, he does more crime now, but his earlier horror stories are really good. Uh, I'm just looking at my bookshelf here. Uh, I'm a big fan of Nathan Ballingrud, um, who is not as well known, but if you are, if you've heard of the show Monsterland, uh, that was based on his story collection, which was originally called North American Lake Monsters, uh, it has been re-released as Monsterland. Um, that's a really, really good collection, really interesting in terms of like being very literary and being horror as well. Uh, yeah, I could go on for a really long time. <laughs> you, you talked a little bit about this thing, but Gemma's wondering when you develop a story, would you kind of begin first with the plot or or with say a monster and Nicole kind of connected to this, I think is ask wondering what's your favorite type of horror story, like either to write or to read. So I, I don't know if those two things are connected for you or not, but um, those are sort of two questions that seem to me like they might have some. Sure. Um, 
So yeah, uh, in terms of like, do I start with like a plot or a, a monster or like the the scary, the nugget of scary? Like, it usually tends to start with the the nugget, like something. The, the main scary thing usually occurs to me first and then I spend a long time trying to to break the story to use like a, a TV term like where you're trying to figure out how we're going to get from point A to point B. Um, so I'll, I'll have a really good idea of like this. I know this is scary. How can I make a story out of it? And so that's usually what takes the longest is is figuring out a plot. So that like comes later for me. It also makes my writing really slow. <laughs> so I find it like I, I'm not a very good outliner um, in terms of like sitting down and actually figuring out an outline. Um, but what I'm essentially doing is do it like trying to come up with individual scenes or characters or a circumstance that can get me to this scary nugget from the beginning. So like writing around this big incident until I've figured out, okay, now I've got a story. And then that's sort of a roundabout way of getting to an outline. And then like once that's happened, then I can get all the way through a first draft and it's it's plotted. But uh, that that can take that can take some time. And it, it sort of like works in a roundabout way. And so like to to use the photograph story again, like as an example, like that's what I I started with, I wrote a scene just about the, the picture itself um, and then wrote around, well, what about the scene where they take the picture? What does he do with the picture after? And so like, these sort of, these things sort of built around themselves. And then eventually like I had to like restructure it and just, you know, move it around and get it into like a point A to point B situation. But I, I started by writing like short snippets around the big payoff, which was the, the, the picture of, this boy and his dead mother um so that's happened with other stories as, as well where it'll be an incident and so like i don't have a lot of monster stories but i do have one with a wendigo um and so that started with like I, the the wendigo is such an awesome monster it's such an intriguing idea um so it, it started with that i was like i want to do a wendigo story <laughs> and then that took a while to figure out um what would be a good one like what would be a good plot what 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 should happen and uh, so that it built around the central idea so that's definitely where i start is a central idea um, in terms of the kind of stories i really like to read i tend to really gravitate to stuff like that, like the same idea where there seems to be a, a nugget like that where where i want to like peel back the layers and get to this this scary idea um, so I'm, I'm definitely a fan of the slow burn horror story um, uh, where it's just, it's very quiet at the beginning, um, builds up to, you know, like ramping up of tension until you finally get to the end and you're just, you're so on edge, you're so keyed up that, um, that it really sort of knocks you off balance. Um, so, so movies that are like that would be something like The Witch, um, the Blair Witch Project, where like, if you just take five minutes out of it, it looks very boring. <laughs> but when it like the cumulative effect of watching it all the way through, and then the ending of, of those two movies in particular, where they, they seem like very quiet endings, but if you've been um, immersed in it all the way through, and then um, what happened, like both there, I'm hoping at least everybody is familiar with those two movies. <laughs> um, 
you know, not trying to spoil endings or anything, but if, if you haven't heard of those, you don't, won't know what I'm talking about, but they're pretty classic examples that are, you know, popular culture now. Um, but in terms of like books that sort of pull that off, um, the Ligotti does that, of course, uh, something like uh, House of Leaves was a book that really unsettled me um, but it's it's a huge slog. Like it is a massive book. Um, it's one that I am very very happy to have read. I loved it. I don't know that I would ever read it again because it, it's a challenge. It's a really hard book to read. Um, Into like even just because the physical book itself is big and awkward, and it's like that on purpose. So the that is a book that really mirrored form and function. That like trying to figure out what's going on is difficult. Um, but the experience of piecing it together is unsettling and odd. And that's one too, where like the basic premise of it is hidden under so many layers of extra stuff. But the basic idea of the story is that this guy discovers that his house is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. That when he does all the measurements, it doesn't match that when he measures the outside of the house, it should be this many square feet inside, this many square inches. And when he measures it on the inside, it's they don't match, they don't ever match. It's always a little bit bigger on the inside of the house. Um, and then, so that gets into there's an urban legend that there is uh, like a handmade, a homemade documentary of the house. Uh, and so the the text, the book, is someone reading the notes of a film scholar who has apparently seen this movie and he is dissecting it and buried under all that is this story of of this house in there that there's something really really off and and wrong and supernatural about the house itself and so that was um i love i love that book um and it is something where i was really drawn to the like i wanted to get at like why is the house bigger on the inside than the outside like that drove me through a real like a 1500 page book <laughs> um so that was definitely a, a i was hooked on the premise and wanted wanted to dig at it um, so those tend to be what i gravitate to kind of connected to this idea of the form shelby wanted to know uh why'd you choose to write gaze in the form of a journal that was, well, a journal, like a first person narrative is a kind of reflection, right? So like the whole, the whole novel centers around mirrors. He's staring at himself. The journal is another way of, of looking at him, um, but it's more internalized. And so like one of the central images of Gaze 2 was the, the, the actual term for it is mise en abîme, which is French, but it's like when you have two mirrors lined up and it just bounces, the image goes on forever. Um, so that's sort of like a journal can sort of do that kind of internalization. Like once you start delving into somebody's mind, there's no end to it. Like it can just, you can just dive into it forever. And that, that was something too, where because the tension of that story and the scary part is what's happening to him, is, is what's going on in his mind rather than the outward experience. So like watching him outside, sitting in the room by himself, there's, that's not actually scary. <laughs> it, like uh, it's the internal uh, conflict that is actually giving that story tension. And in terms of plot, like very little happens in that story, right? Like it's pretty simple, but it, it all boils down to like the, the creepy part is what he thinks is happening. 
Uh, so that's why that that was told as as a journal because the the horror there is is the internal conflict of the character rather rather than the plot or the like the outward happenings. Um, so that that would make it a, more of a psychological horror story than an outward horrific. Thing. There's no monster really. I just want to connect something you said to some of the course concepts real quick. There's a story, there's a poem that we read called Ishmael, Ishmael Reed's poem. Uh, beware, do not read this poem. So now when you mentioned me on a beam, uh, there is also, in addition to that, uh, you know, th- the way that it actually is meant, there's also a way that it's used in literary studies. So this is just sort of a note for, for people. There's a way that that me on a beam phrase is used in literary studies. It comes from uh uh, I'm blanking all of a sudden on this person who came up with it, uh, but um, it's used in literary studies to refer to a story inside of a story uh, that is also a metaphor for the overall story. So in the Ishmael Reed poem, for example, the thriller plot, you know, where the woman uh, is haunts the mirror uh, and is pulling people into it, that's technically speaking, in terms of like literary terms, that's a mise on a beam, you know, story inside of a story that is also mirroring the actual thing that's happening in the read poem, where it's purporting to pull you into the poem and so on. So that's a really just a really technical kind of connection between that concept um, and you know how it kind of gets used in some of these meta horrors. And you see versions of that in other stories, but I think the read one is the most obvious. Uh, but just kind of to jump ahead to a more new uh, piece of writing by you. So the most recent uh, book that you published is Signal Decay. Kiara wanted to know what specifically kind of influenced the ideas for that story. That one would be, um, again, like the started with something simple um, was was the laugh track idea. Uh, so for those who, who haven't read it or, or aren't familiar with this this story so it centers on Lori uh, whose husband Tim has recently died very unexpectedly Uh, he was a sound engineer um, and she is going through all his old stuff after he's died um, and she's going through all his old uh, his audio files looking for anything any recordings of himself so he didn't actually record himself uh, he recorded all these other things, and so she's hoping desperately to find um, a an audio recording of him, something he said, something he's interested in. Um, and so she goes in this deep dive of of really getting obsessed with looking for him in in terms of sound. And uh, she hears a laugh track on a TV show, and she's convinced that she can hear his laugh embedded in the soundtrack. And she's trying to figure out how that could actually be. Um, and so that came from, again, like a weird thing I found on, on the internet, <laughs> which is a great hovel of nonsense that occasionally you'll find something really interesting. But I um, I can't remember how I found it, but it, it centered on this device, which was called the Charlie Douglas Laugh Box, uh, which was an old, audio engineering invention from like the 50s uh, uh, and it's how they created laugh tracks for TV shows 
Um, so what they discovered when they started like filming sitcoms, and so one of like one of the shows that is mentioned in Signal Decay is I Love Lucy, which is a show I really liked as a kid. It's horribly sexist. It's really quite something to watch it now. But um, it was the very first show that was actually recorded and filmed. So it was the first show that had reruns. Um, everything else was like, it, there were cameras and there was an audience present, uh, but it was shot live and then it was gone. So I Love Lucy was the first one recorded. So then you could rewatch it. You could watch another episode of it. Um, and they filmed in front of a live audience. And so there, were, there was laughter when the jokes hit and they very quickly realized that people liked watching those shows more that if if there is this communal experience of laughing they tended to get bigger laughs and better laughs um uh, but it was really expensive to film in front of an audience all the time and like where sh if shows moved outside or it had more than one location uh it became just basically impossible to always have an audience present in order to have the laughs so they tried to record just laughing in order to put it where they wanted in the mix of the show and then they also discovered that like when jokes were bad and didn't land if you put the laugh track on it you tricked people and then they would laugh at it, even though it was stupid that would be you know a good example of how something like the big bang theory tricks people to think that it's funny because it's not <laughs> but anyway so this sound engineer came up with this idea of of the laugh box and he recorded thousands of individual laughs and assembled them all in this machine and then he would custom make a laugh track for each show um so it was never the exact same laugh track it sounded like a dynamic organic audience but it was just him dicking around with his this machine that he had invented um and it's a it's a real machine it really exists and it turned up on antiques roadshow once and this collector scooped it up because he knew what it was and apparently all the uh the laugh the laugh tracks that still exist that are like part of a digital library like every studio just has access to the same library so they just still they keep using them they're apparently all still taken from the recordings in this box um that they don't they don't record laugh tracks anymore they just use these same old laughs from the 50s and 60s so that to me felt like a ghost story in and of itself, that these are ghost laughs. Like those people aren't there, they aren't laughing at this thing. They're being sort of exercised and put in to something modern. And uh, that's like where the, the main idea for that, that story really came from. And when it first started, it was more scary. Like I was more going for like a spooky haunted thing. And then just as I broke the story, as I figured out what the plot was, it turned out much more melancholy and introspective. So like Signal Decay is, is like, there's a little bit of creep factor, it's, it's creepy, but it's, it's not really scary. Um, so it's, it's much more of, a, of an emotional, um, sad story than, than a horror story. But it's, it started with this sort of ghostly haunting idea. Do it.